grade request for two college professors to take a second look at questions and answers from around the internet and from you, the listener. My name is Professor McBurney. And my name is Professor Mark Sheriff. And Will, I dropped my first sh- name again. You did forget your first name. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, well, well. In, fairness, in fairness, I don't think I've ever said my first name on this podcast, come to think of it. No, yes, you have. Go back and listen to earlier episodes. You absolutely have said your first name more than more than one time. No, I, I, I know pro- I said Will. Yes, as a name, not just as, you know, a intent. Yeah, no, no, but Will is not my first name. Oh, okay. Jeez. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm one of those people. Yes, yes. If you said, and my name is Professor Paul McBurney, then everyone's like, Paul McCartney's on the podcast? What's going yeah. on here? Yeah. He's a professor. Is that how that works? Hey, do you know this time of year around Charlottesville uh, the, that it's coming up to Foxfield? Uh, are, are you enough of, of been here long enough that you know what that means? I mean, since I've lived here, every spring has been locked down. So, no, that no, I is don't. true. So on the way out Barracks Road, going down Garth Road. So heading out to the western part of the county, there is mm-hmm. a, a horse race track. Called okay. Foxfield, and it is very nice. It's actually usually there's lots of you know steeple chases and things like that that are going on, and it's mm-hmm. very nice. But every spring toward the end of the semester is the official spring Foxfield races, and so I drive actually drive past Foxfield every morning when I'm taking Sammy to school, and mm-hmm. we were going past there today, and she noticed, oh my god, she's like, there's there's so many porta potties out there, and I was like, yeah, they're <laughs> they're all. There are a lot of party parties out there. She said, that's really good. So the, the, the horse racers can go have a potty try before you have to race in their races. And I was like, that's awful cute. That's not what they're there for. Yeah. They're there for our students who are going to get absolutely blasted. As a matter of fact, here's our first one from the UVA subreddit. Can I bring a flask to Foxfield? As a student going with Greek-like life to Foxfield, how easy is it to bring a flask to the races? Is there a metal detector? First response, a flask? Dear Lord, please tell me they haven't ruined Foxfield. Back in my day, we brought truckloads of alcohol to Foxfield and it was encouraged. First response to that was, well, the new alcohol rules are two-fifths, two bottles of wine, and six packs of beer per person. The next person said, yes, they ruined Foxfield. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, now I know. So now you know. So I uh, make sure you're you're watching out for your kids on on Monday. I suppose mm-hmm. um, they might have a uh, an eventful weekend, not only at the races, but then recovering from the races. Well, uh, their I, I project do that, is due on Tuesday. So. The, oh golly, that's going to be that's going to be something else. Hey, are no. we going to talk? Are we going to talk about Elon? Are we going to talk about Elon? Should we just go ahead and say something about? <laughs> Y'all wish y'all wish you could just see the face he made when I said his name. <laughs> I just no, it's it's not even Elon Musk. It's just like the fact that this Twitter thing has become the biggest news story in America. It it's Twitter. People are like, yeah. oh my god, I'm gonna leave Twitter. I'm like, good. Pro- problem solved. You know, if nothing else, if Elon Musk gets like half the country to leave Twitter, he's done a good thing. Twitter is like, and to be clear, I go on Twitter and and post snarkily about sports and sometimes memes, but like people take it way too seriously. And uh, I think if if we as a country just like all I think if we can get people that 
are not broadly popular to just buy up every social media platform and get everyone to leave them, I think it would be the best thing they could do for the country is just get people to not use social media anymore. Don't get me wrong. I, the main reason I go on Twitter really is to go see Hearthstone decks being posted. That's kind of my number one usage of Twitter as it, as it, as it might be. Uh, and I had to actually log out of Twitter on my phone just because I kept checking it too often mm. and seeing stories that were making me not have a good day. Mm. Um, it's one of those things where with social media, I wish we could have social media, but not have the social media. Yeah. If you know what I mean? I think that there, there's a lot of positive that can be done when you can keep up with your friends or make, you can build mm-hmm. communities around a, a thing, a topic or something like that, you know, whether it be a Reddit or a Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. It's just that once a, a social media has been around long enough, it just spirals into echo chamber and toxicity. It's like we have to reboot every social mm-hmm. media, everything about every, I don't know, year, two years. Well, well here's the problem with social media. Oh, uh, lay it out for us. Confirmation bias. Well, yeah, it is. It is custom I agree with you. I- <laughs> to feed your confirmation bias. You mentioned the echo chambers thing, and it's just the biggest problem with that really is that like when Facebook started, it was primarily just to find other people in college. I mean, hell, specifically we put our, at your own college, at your own college. At, we hell, we put our dorm rooms like what dorm we were staying in on our Facebook page. So that way we could find other people in our dorm room, which now sounds insane, but at the time it was fine. Um, and, and, you know, just once, once you get to the, uh, the like button there, there was a great article on the, which, which kind of compared social media to babble, uh, the, 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 the biblical the reference. Yes. Um, not, recently. The, not the company was, that helps you learn another language. No, no, no. I was in the Atlantic, if I recall correctly. And, um, it was a professor at NYU, Jonathan Haidt wrote it. And it was just talking about how like the like button, which was then fed into the interaction algorithm. And then you were fed things that you would just react to regardless, whether it was, you know, good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, that's sort of where you start to see just things fall apart. I mean, just as a culture, no longer able to discuss facts that are the same between different communities is that point. So anything that happens that destroys that paradigm, I think is for the betterment of humanity. And I know that sounds grandiose, but I absolutely sincerely believe that. Now that we got that out of the way, can we actually do some listener questions? We can. So we actually got some listener questions and we actually got a lot, which for a long time we didn't get any. So you sent me, I think it was like eight or so were these in all, in all fairness, they were from two listeners. So they were That's just two thought, prolific yeah. listeners. Yeah. So I was, asked, so James I was interested and Matt, in this too. Yeah, James and Matt, thank you so much. We appreciate the yeah. questions. We are not going to answer all eight questions tonight. I think we each got maybe one that we're going to touch on. Maybe two. Yeah. We'll see. Which one spoke to you first for tonight? I know there were some ones you said you want to go do some research on yeah. first, which is, you know, that far be it from us from actually, you know, looking up material so we know what we're talking about before we talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're this is a podcast about answering questions despite our best efforts. 
And so sometimes it helps to know what the answers are before we start speaking. Mm, I mean, that's we're true. professors. We're not so we, you know, we're supposed to know everything, but turns out we don't. Anyway, I'm the Oracle at Delphi. Go for it, yo. Yeah. Um. All right. So one of the first ones we got was effectively asking what it, what does it mean to say agile software development and why has it become so predominant in industry? And there's actually, it's a bit of a loaded question there, because there are a couple, like, there's there's an assumption in that second part of the question that, it, it's not wrong, but it it is a bit narrow. It, it's a bit more focused on kind of what you think of as, I'd say, like, the web development industry than, than maybe some other things. Anyway, go ahead. It, it, it boils down to what what's the type of software that we're building. So... Well, let's first talk about what we mean when we say agile, and I, and we're comparing this to what we're what's what we'd call plan driven development. If you're thinking uh, agile, I, can I jump in real quick? Some people no, because I just did a restart. Some some people uh, would call that traditional as well. Just just to clarify the terminology for some listeners. So so the family values, family family values, traditional. Yeah. 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 Okay. You know, right. white picket fence, dog in the yard. Traditional software engineering, the American dream. <laughs> Java 11 for everyone. All right. Um, I don't even know what Java we're up to. Um, so at Agile, we're thinking three people in a garage hacking stuff together, lots of beanbag chairs coming in at noon sort of stereotype, whereas plan driven or traditional, excuse me. Um, is your office space TPS reports. That's that stereotype. And it's not so much the stereotypes of the type of people building the software that you should be looking at. It's what is the type of software being built. If you are building the recipe uh, keeping website for Grandma Rachel, uh, that usually doesn't require a ton of extra documentation. And you can kind of just talk to Grandma Rachel and figure out what it is she needs. That's going to be more agile. If you're building software that's going to be operating a pacemaker, well, you're going to want to do a lot more testing. It needs to be approved probably by the FDA, mm. a lot more documentation. That's what the, the scope here is. And so I, I could see from you know uh, someone who says, oh, there's a ton of Agile out there. Well, there is because you look at a lot of new development. A lot yeah. of, hey, I'm building the coolest new web web app or new mobile app or whatever. Yeah, that does tend to be agile because that can be more flexible. But there's a lot of software in the world that has to, is mission critical. Things that operate mm. banks, airlines, medical devices. And that is not agile by, a, by yeah. any stretch. I think it would help. Let's take a step and kind of more like specifically define how individuals would work in those environments in terms of uh when the software is ready so so in agile you often release what's called an mvp not most valuable program but uh, a minimum viable product the idea of agile is you you just get something in front of a customer it, it's not intended to be the finished product it is often like a minimum set of features that you that your system is is, is trying to represent and then you get this in front of the customer and get feedback from them. And, and the idea is you're operating in rapid cycles where the software is in use. People are using it live. You're getting feedback. You're taking that feedback. You're turning it into new features, new maintenance, whatever. 
whereas with traditional, you you get the software at the end of the development process. Well, not mm-hmm. counting the maintenance cycle, which of course is the longest and most expensive cycle, but but nonetheless, like they're they're the main development occurs and then the product's released after. Right. And so this gets to what you're talking about with mission critical things. You're not going to be like, okay, well, this is autopilot version 0.2. <laughs> Sometimes it crashes. Uh, like it's like 30% of the time it crashes, but, but we just want to get some feedback, get it in front of the customers, <laughs> literally right? get it in front of the customer. Yeah. Just like, Hey <laughs> man, man, you know, the in-flight entertainment was great, but my plane crashed and I have two broken legs now. Like, okay, we're going to fix that in version 0.2.4. That comes out in a month. Um, like, no, that so, so with Agile, the idea is you, you want to get something in front of a customer and get rapid feedback cycles, which is really easy to do in web development type settings, or even if you're just making an app to perform some function. In fact, a lot of times with, with sort of modern paradigms of how internet business grows, where things like you try to get platform monopolies effectively, um, in fact, you want to be the first to market and get people starting to use it with the intent that the faster you get in front of customers, the faster you're getting feedback, the faster you're getting people hooked on that particular product. Um, Traditional plan driven, you don't get a product out until much, much later in the process, which means if there is a serious misunderstanding of what the customer wants, you can have problems there. It's also less receptive to change, which is one of the big defining points as to whether you choose to do agile or plan driven is if you expect that you're releasing something that's going to need to change a lot over time, um, that's going to lean you towards more doing an agile process so you can react to that change. Whereas if your requirements are very, very stable, they're unlikely to change in the time frame of development, you know, because of things like FAA regulations, etc., or, or safety regulations, whatever, then you're going to potentially be leaning more towards plan-driven. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the 10-minute version of one week of content from the class that Will and I teach together. If you're yeah. interested in more of that, we have YouTube videos posted, and you can see us lecture on it with slides. But uh, thank you, uh, James, for that question. We very much appreciate it. I'm going to go now to a question from Matt, uh, mm-hmm. which is also kind of software engineering related. The question says, the software engineering industry has paths to job as a programmer that don't require a formal mm-hmm. background in computer science. Is the same true of CS research publications? That is, can I get a paper published in a journal or presented at a conference without having an academic appointment? The quick answer is yes, yeah. absolutely you can. Because as a matter of fact, if we look at um, some of the venues that Will and I publish papers at, they have what is called a double double anonymous review process. And what a double anonymous, I can't say the word anonymous, double anonymous review process means is when you submit the paper, you submit a version of the paper that does not have any attribution at all. You remove the author name, affiliations. And Mm -hmm. in fact, if you have any acknowledgements or you have any citations that could give any hint as to who you are, you remove those. And throughout the article, if you refer to, you know, I perform this research at wherever you even say, you know, unnamed university. You even say something like that. So like as specific as you'll get is maybe something like for, for, you know, if we were, if we were writing, like we tested this class at university of Virginia, replace that with like 
R1 university, R1 public university in the United States. Something yep. like that. Yeah. Exactly right. And, uh, and and the reason you would do that is depending on what you're trying to report on, sometimes there are cultural differences between doing something in the southern United States versus Africa. I mean that literally. I mean I've I've reviewed papers on people who have taught mm. CS courses in Africa. But th- that aside, so that's one half of the anonymous part. The other anonymous part the people who are reviewing the paper don't identify themselves either. Mm-hmm. And so we have this process by which no one knows who anyone else is when the paper is reviewed. And then it goes to the program chairs uh, or the editors of the journal, whatever it might be. And then they make a decision whether it's to be accepted or not. If it's accepted, then the anonymous is removed. And I definitely know people who have published papers who their affiliation is listed as independent. Mm-hmm. Or they list like their personal consulting company or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So these are people who have had some training. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, that's that's it. They didn't have to have an academic appointment to have it published. They had to. I mean, let's be. Cl- I mean, you had to write a good paper still. Right. But it's 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 not a requirement to be a professor somewhere in order to do that. But the part of this question that's kind of the secondary part that you don't necessarily think about is the cost of publishing a paper. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as big a deal in CS, but in a lot of other disciplines, if you get a paper published, there is a publishing fee. And that publishing mm-hmm. fee is easily in the thousands of dollars oh, yeah. in, in some fields, particularly medical fields, um, biology, chemistry, some of those. It's just huge. And yeah. that isn't paid by the author typically it's typically built into whatever research grant is written for you know the, the work that is being done and that's a known component and many research uh grant agencies like the nsf have rules that say if you do research with our money you can't publish it in a place where no one can see it which you know that makes sense the nsf mm-hmm. is public funds so the research should be public in some some way mm. and so you, you need to pay for this open access i believe i don't know if will you did you see seen this for us i think the open access fee for some of the sigsy stuff is i think it's like twelve hundred dollars yeah it's it, it's much much lower i mean when i published in um one journal i remember seeing that it was like uh it was north of five thousand um oh my gosh well that was uh i think that was a an ieee transaction um yeah if i remember I mean, right but uh there there was there was a great post on on uh that i did see on twitter which is why is uh elon musk spending all this money buying twitter when he could publish three open access articles in nature <laughs> i think i actually saw that tweet too somewhere yeah but uh, it, it's it's interesting. So so this goes back to the to the point. Can you have something published if you don't have an academic appointment? Mm. Well, yeah. Do you yeah. got do you have the money to pay for? I mean, it, again, it depends. There are also places where you don't pay a fee, and it's just it, you basically hand over copyright on some level, right. and um, it goes behind a, a, a paywall. Um, Con- so. Conferences tend to be like that in computer science. I, I typically haven't seen, um, you know, conference. I mean, you have conference registration fees if you want to go. You typically don't have to pay to. Sub- well, you don't have to pay to submit to review no. unless it's like predatory, basically. 
Um, but then at conferences, like they'll publish it, although they typically require at least one author attend the conference. Correct. Which at least means one you're paying the registration it. fee, which I mean, the, the one I know that's just in that's crazy out of control of the price is uh, Ixy. I know this because I was thinking of going and man, it's it, it's a significant chunk of uh, of any discretionary funds. I mean, the simple truth is if you if you make if you make if you do good research and you write it well, it can get published. It's mm-hmm. just that the resources that you have at your disposal are going to be less and it's potentially going to limit some of your decisions. Uh, on where you can publish and and in software engineering, I would say there's there's a lot more opportunities as opposed to as you mentioned like medical or things like that. There um, are plenty of people. Uh, speaking of ICSI, which for, for folks that's the International Conference on Software Engineering, um, there are plenty of people from Microsoft that mm-hmm. publish at ICSI that talk about you know here's how we do our build process at Microsoft. They do internal research. You know, they've got some money lying around at Microsoft, mm. all that Game Pass money. Um, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, an academic appointment, absolutely, absolutely not required. Yeah, I mean, I, I published a paper with someone who was working in industry. Now, he had been an academic before, but he was working at a company called ABB at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're out in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. Or there, there's an office in Raleigh. Anyway... Right. You got another question you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, sticking with the topic of software, since so that seems to be kind of our, our standard MO here. Um, this gets into... Now, Now the question itself used a phrase, I think, a bit incorrectly, and we'll talk about that. But it was talking about how, um, you know, what, what kind of games do you think can work as software as a service? And they specifically mentioned Beyond MMO and Esports. So I want to take a second and define software as a service and say why I think live service games may not necessarily qualify as that, because there is a definition of software as a service that we have, which isn't exactly this. That's fair. Yeah. Um, So software as a service generally is a model like um, Google Drive. Gmail. Or Gmail, yeah. Um, but but I'm sticking with Google Drive. What you have is you have a single app that connects a bunch of different pieces of software that you that that you can do something with over the internet. You know, you have your spreadsheets, your Word, etc. And the idea is that software is hosted on another server, so it's completed software hosted on another server that you're interacting with in a live way. Um, so, for instance, it doesn't exactly apply in the same way to a game like Elden Ring has online elements. Allegedly, they don't work great on PC, if I'm honest. And um, yeah, there's online components, but I wouldn't call it software as a service because you're running the software locally on your machine as opposed to accessing it over the network or right. yes. hosting that software on a server that other people are using. Uh, but and any comments on just software as a service or I hit isn't, that right isn't runes runescape software as a service because that's just a browser game that's running on some other machine was runescape like that um it might be i don't know yeah. um, but no that I, I think it's important to, to make that distinction because the the, the software as a service it, it is more of a 
I mean, it's a subscription model like live service is a subscription model, but software as a service doesn't usually have an upfront cost. Mm-hmm. Whereas a live service game you, like an MMO, you typically are buying. I mean, it depends upon the MMO, but right. th- there is a distinction here. Yeah. Um. So so getting into live service games, this is something that is starting to go away, at least compared to where it was at its most prevalent, which I think is definitely a big win uh, for for the gaming industry in a lot of ways. Um, this sort of arose largely. There were a few games, um, you know, obviously there was the big MMORPGs with monthly subscriptions and a bunch of games tried to basically compete with World of Warcraft with that model. Uh, Star Wars Air Republic, Wild Star, which I, I miss so much. It was such a great game. Uh, Terra just shut down. Star Wars Air Republic is actually still going, but it's, it's definitely scaled back dramatically from what they intended. And so the idea is, how can you basically have a game like WoW, where people are in the game all the time and thus spending money on the game, but not with an upfront subscription fee, because that turns off a lot of people. Hence, you have these live service games that emerge, things like Destiny, things like, um, uh, 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 what, what's the one, The Division, uh, Anthem tried to do this. Um, pulling some real popular ones here. Yeah, well, though there, there's a reason that that these games suck, and it's uh, Fallout 76 live service game, and and the reason is they basically make the game intentionally very very grindy and inconvenient to play, such that you have to get on every day and do all the dailies and everything. You have to interact with the game regularly, and then they'll sell you the solution. They'll sell you, oh, wow, this game's really grindy and slow. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if instead of spending three weeks grinding to get enough of X resource or something, you could just, like, give us ten bucks and we'll give you, like, five of those things at random? Uh, and that's sort of where the monetization of the live service games came in. It wasn't <laughs> so, just the upfront so, cost. It was microtransaction-based. So now Genshin Impact. Well, I mean, Genshin Impact is a live service game. Yeah. Um... And it pervaded just the entire industry. Um, you know, NBA 2K basically is a live service game now. And every game mode not related to that live service model has suffered dramatically. Um, and then EA put out a game called uh, Star Wars Knights of the Fallen Order. And everyone was like, oh, wait, that's right. Single-player games that aren't loaded down with ridiculous amount of microtransactions can be good and therefore sell incredibly well. Silly us, we forgot. Um, So Dragon Age 4 was going to be a live service game. And thankfully it's been saved by Star Wars Knights of the Fallen Order because now they're they're redoing, or they, they, a few years ago they announced, they're basically redoing it as a single-player game. Which, yeah, it's an RPG, it's an RPG. I mean, last time... Bioware tried to do that live service model. We had Anthem. So I do think that that trend is starting going. It will never be gone. It will always be around, unfortunately, now. But it's definitely falling off as the industry standard, I would say. So I mentioned a bit about MMOs. The idea of a lot of these live service games is they try to put the emphasis on social interaction. 
And you get this kind of tug of war between the theme park model and the sandbox model. Uh, so the theme park model is something like World of Warcraft. They give you a bunch of content like raids and dungeons and leveling areas and all that, and you play through it. But the problem with a theme park is that it's very expensive to create that content, expensive just in terms of programmer effort and everything, and inevitably you can never produce content as fast as people will consume the content. Even World of Warcraft can't do this, and it's far and away the largest MMORPG. Actually, no way, I take that back. Final Fantasy XIV is bigger now. Is. Yeah. Yep. But, uh, well, over the course of history, it certainly has had oh. the largest audience. Oh, of course. Over uh, history. But even at its peak, couldn't produce the content faster than it could be consumed. So then you try to integrate sandbox elements that typically comes in the form of PvP or some type of in thing that forces players to interact in some way. Um, and, of course, anytime you have anything competitive... People are going to try to prove they're the best at it, and that's where esports kind of can come into the picture. So that 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 speaks to what the individual mentioned. As far as other live service incentives, um, I mean, there is just the casual social interaction. I know it's not typically a big advertising point, but there's a lot of there's a lot of people who play a game casually for social interaction. Uh, you know, you can go back to a lot of the MMOs that have been killed over the years, one of them, Azeroth's Call, which was really old MMORPG owned by Warner Brothers. And you can go back and look at the final moments of that MMORPG and see people who've been playing the game for a decade with people online, with friends. And even they weren't like super hardcore raiders or anything. They weren't, you know, hardcore PvP. They were just playing the game with friends. And and that certainly what can play Asheron's a role there. Call? May, that's it. Yeah, whatever. I who cares? It doesn't exist anymore. No, you have um, Warcraft on the mind. But uh, yeah, it's Asheron's call. That's right. Azeroth is the yeah World Warcraft world. But the I mean, the key with these types of models is to try to get people to interact with the game daily. I mean, by the by this argument, you could say Candy Crush is a live service game, right? Um, hmm. because it's it it it's designed in a way that you play it daily and interact with it daily because it's a platform for serving ads and, and other related stuff. So I did something kind of odd today because I wanted to test out one of the questions I wanted to talk about. Um, I was flipping through Reddit as I want to do and got past mildly interesting. And there they had a picture of someone who had tried to photocopy some money. And I'm gonna hold up some money for mm -hmm. Will to see. And what the copier did is it printed the entire page in red as a form of copy protection because it was able to detect that there was money in there. And so I got really curious about this. And so I scanned, uh, I, I, I d disconnected my printer from the Wi-Fi and then I... <laughs> and then I photocopied the $10 bill and I'll hold this up for Will to see. And it did just fine. Nothing weird happened here. I mean, it didn't do the, it didn't do the watermarks, of course. Right. Of course. And then I scanned it to see what windows would do and it was fine. But then I tried to load the scan into Photoshop. And as soon as I double click, and this was a full, full page, it was, you know, it wasn't just like just the bank note. It was a whole eight and a half by 11 mm -hmm. with a lot of white space and all sorts of stuff. And I tried to load it in Photoshop and Photoshop gave me this error. 
This application does not support the printing of banknote images. For more information, select the information button below for internet-based information at rulesforuse.org. Mm-hmm. So, after I went a little bit further down this rabbit hole, I mean, there's some interesting things like you're actually allowed to make photocopies of money in the U.S., believe it or not, mm-hmm. uh, as long as the size is less than three quarters or more than 1.5 the size of an actual bill, and it's only one size. I mean, there's rules like that. Mm. But there is a hidden algorithm on almost all money worldwide. If you look at a $10 bill, a $20 bill or something like that, a US 10 or 20, if you have them, you will see a collection of just little like tens or twenties, just the number tens or twenties all over the place. It turns out the zeros of these numbers or the positions of these numbers form the constellation Orion. And there is an algorithm and a module that has been released by the central bank counterfeit deterrence unit that is incorporated into a lot of printers and a lot of scanners and into software like Photoshop to detect that constellation of zeros to recognize that it is a banknote of some kind. Huh. So this was actually discovered by a security researcher named Marcus Kuhn uh, from Germany. I believe from Germany. Uh, Yes, Germany. Uh, And he nicknamed the algorithm the Urion constellation, E-U-R-I-O-N, because he first found it on a 10 euro note. Okay. uh, uh, When he was doing some experiments in 2002, on a Xerox photocopier. Uh, It turns out that the technical details regarding this Urian algorithm have been kept secret. Um, The first mention of it could be found in a patent application in 1995 from the Omron Corporation, which is a Japanese company that presumably did this. Mm. But you can't really find an official name of this algorithm or this technique. Um, There is hints of it in some reports from some central banks like from india there was a press release that mentioned omron rings named after the company Uh, but if you look through the wikipedia page on the urian constellation algorithm this this pattern of zeros can be found in the australian dollar the british pound the canadian dollar the chinese yuan the danish krone the euro um, the Indian rupee, the Indonesian rupee, Japanese yen, the American dollar, the Moroccan drum, the, mm. I mean, you just like everything uses this secret Illuminati-esque algorithm yeah, that's, <laughs> in your, uh, in your money. And, uh, um, I, I guess I, my copier is just not smart enough to, to pick I, it up. I believe I can hear my father just having an aneurysm right now, uh, <laughs> as he... As he hears this, he doesn't listen. It's fine. <laughs> but I, that's just so cool. Yeah. That, 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 that it's, it's like, you know, uh, uh it's like a Dan Brown novel, like in my, right. I'm, I'm, well, what, what I'm curious is like, so I, yeah, you know, ask I understand the mechanics I, I, of, yeah. Yeah. Ask me a question. I got really a little yeah, too I mean, deep well, into this what, today. I, what I'm curious is how do they incentivize the companies that create these printers or or this Im- or image editing software to actually integrate this uh 
how how do the how do those manufacturers find out about it? How are they incentivized? I mean, I could imagine in some countries that the, you know you 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 can't release this product without this this thing in place. But I'd be I mean I I guess I mean I haven't heard of such a law in the United States. Certainly, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But I would be surprised by that um, if it were like you literally couldn't release a, a scanner that didn't do this. So I, I'm kind of curious how they incentivize companies to to adopt it. Yeah, I don't, that I don't know. Unless there's some notion that if I mean I could see something like Adobe. I mean, I, well, let, let's pick let's pick Adobe. You know, a major company that makes image ed- editing software, some of the most you know well known yeah, yeah, sure. imaging editing software ever. Um, I mean, I guess I can the, absolutely imagine them voluntarily doing it. Sure. Yeah, because the the press of uh, uh, of it coming out like hey that's not cool you know like adobe right. photoshop was used the other day in order to create yeah. all this extra like i could certainly see that happening and probably you know major things like xerox or something like that you know that said i'm going to launch paint.net yeah, yeah i was just thinking with smaller programs how they would so paint.net for people that don't know is an open source um Open source imaging software. It's actually pretty good. Uh, I used it a lot before I just ponied up for Photoshop. Uh, let me see here. Where is it? It is under my pictures, scans. You open that banknote, see what it does. Ah, yeah, Paint.net has no problem with it. Paint.net's like, go for it. You can do whatever you want okay. to to this. So, it, so it's not a legal requirement thing. Or, or, yeah. or we just got Paint.net shut down by the Secret Service. Either or. Well, so the other thing, um, I might have just got a ding on that because Paint.net started installing something. Um, (laughs) It's a tracker. It's like, all right, this person, this FBI is going to kick down your door any second now. (laughs) Paint.net supports counterfeit money. Now, um, from the article that I that I on on Wikipedia and also from other information from the Central Bank Counterfeit Deterrence Group, it sounds like that they provide um, a binary module to companies uh, to just incorporate into their software right. in order to to just do this. And since Paint.net is open source, well, <laughs> we can well, see yeah, why that, that would be that would be a bit tricky. Then wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, that might that might be a little especially bit of a- when. They're apparently not trying to advertise the existence of this thing. Yeah. No. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, I, I honestly did not know about that. I didn't either. It was it was really neat. Now I know I, I need no. now I need now I know I need to use paint.net to counterfeit money. Got it. Here's the that that's all that explains so many of the problems I've been having. It, I mean, what? That be, Sorry, what? Would that be a poor episode title? Uh, ep- make sure to use Paint.net to counterfeit your <laughs> yeah, money? I imagine somebody would be unhappy with that. <laughs> and by somebody, I mean multiple entities, not just Paint.net. Um, yeah, probably. Probably not. Um, no. All right, here's one from No Stupid Questions. Hey, Will, why do geese love university campuses so much? Kids are always looking at their phone. Distracted prey, easy prey. Oh gosh, what type of geese are you seeing around around UVA? Geese are monsters. I had I, I, there were geese because I, I went to Notre Dame for my PhD. So lakes equal geese. Oh, they were horrible. 
They were they were the most aggressive animals I've ever seen. I got chased by geese multiple times. And it was just a thing that happened at Notre Dame was sometimes you got chased by geese and you just accepted this as a fact. Wait, okay. You okay, you're just like walking across the quad and then just like the honk squad just charges at you? I mean, technically I was walking, I mean, near somewhat near a lake. I wasn't walking through a quad uh, per se, but yeah, I mean, I was trying to exercise and this is why I, I stopped exercising because I got tired of being <laughs> attacked by geese. So, so, okay. So a traumatic experience with the honk squad is what yeah. led you just that, that directed your life path. No, actually, I'm just incredibly lazy, but I was oh, making okay. a joke, oh. uh, but no, no geese, <laughs> the, the, I, but I wasn't joking about like, geese attacking people at Notre Dame. It wasn't like it wasn't like an everyday thing. Like it wasn't Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds or anything, but yeah, I mean geese are geese are jerks. So now I'm just picturing the Fighting Irish um mascot logo except a goose with the with the little little Irish hat and holding up holding up mm-hmm. some dukes getting ready for it. Would be, it. it would be apropos. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for hanging out with us for the past little bit. I have no idea what you're going to hear from this episode because during this episode, my computer crashed and there were at least two jokes that really didn't work. So there's a lot of editing that went into this one. So it could have be a 45 minute episode, could be 10 minutes. Who knows? But I hope you enjoyed every single minute that you stay stuck here with us. So if you haven't had a chance to subscribe to the podcast, you can go to regraderquest.com and click on the podcatcher of your choice to start getting us on the regular uh, by regular. I mean, whenever we manage to record an episode each week, this is like a new record for us. This is like four weeks in a Well, not now we have only the second week in a row. That's actually. right. I, that's right. I was just and, looking and, back at the list of, I ex- won't be around next week because project demos because project demos. Yeah. 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 If you have questions you would like for us to answer, do like Matt, do like James email us at hosts at regradequest.com. Or you're welcome to leave a voicemail message. I think that works. No one's done it. So uh, who knows? Maybe I have 100 voicemail messages in um, uh, in, in Anchor and Spotify. And I just I just don't know it. But while you're out there, you know, watch out for geese. Watch out for random Elon Musk's running around Twitter. For myself and for Professor Will McBurney, take care, be safe, and watch for falling goats. And we're dropping so much from that episode, it looks like falling goats. Yeah, there's a lot of falling goats, falling goats, falling geese, fighting geese. I'm telling you, they're vicious. I I know. And they have teeth. I'd rather have a goat land on.